Zero Hours, Catherine Mather. Ow! Zero Hours! Hello and welcome to Zero Hours Podcast with me, Catherine Mather, where I talk to comedians about the best and worst jobs that they've had to do to get by. Today I'm joined by the comedian Ben van der Veld. Hello! Hello! (laughs) In the studio where I keep all of my things and I sleep. Um, (laughs) (laughs) That feels on brand with a Zero Hours themed podcast. It is, yeah. Uh, I only do Zero Hours jobs. Um, not because I want it, because of comedy. Oh wow, um, the only zero hours job that I have ever had. Because to be fair, I was doing I was doing shitty jobs long before zero hours was a thing. <laughs> but the only zero hours job I've had was in performance, really? and, st- and still sort of is when I occasionally do it. Ah, what's that? Maze Master at the Crystal Maze. <gasps> Sweet. Yeah, yes. I'm not sure I should officially announce that they're on zero hours contract there, but yeah, fuck I've them. done it. Come at me, Richard O'Brien. Yeah, let them know. It's yeah. Fine. Is Richard Ayoade there all the time? Um, oh, we can't get rid of him. He's just like, guys, I want to I want to warm up for the TV show. Yeah, is he there with that hand thing that he umbrella hand thing that he had? Yeah, he is. It's the, he anoints new mates masters with it. Oh yeah, that's really. <laughs> I would like to see that. That'd be adorable. It's invasive. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> <Ew>. <laughs> no, <laughs> that got gross very quickly. Yeah, <laughs> it it will. Yes, fair enough. So what? Uh, what is the worst job that you've ever done? The worst job that I've ever done, it wasn't disgusting and it wasn't demeaning, but it's a sort of score draw for two. Uh, both just on them. One was incredibly mundane mm-hmm. and one was incredibly exploitative. So the mundane one, age like 15 or 16, I went to a faceless beige pebble dash box of a building sat in a soulless cubicle and did market research for bt and can i ask you Catherine? do you think my decision to do that was a very good b good c neither good nor bad <laughs> d bad or e very bad uh I don't, how well did it pair <laughs> uh, i have to ask you again do you think it was a very it, I mean, it paid, um, God, I mean, so it was 1998 or 99. I cannot have been on more than a five or an hour. Oh, God. <laughs> but, you know, inflation and all that, and it was still not too much. It was, like, it, like it, wasn't, it wasn't the worst amount of money in the world. It was, the money wasn't a thing. It was the pointlessness and tediousness of the jobs the fact that each little section had a manager who listened in on you like the stasi and that the woman who was at the head of it and um just to let your listeners know i'm not the sort of person who regularly has a go at women for the way they look and their <laughs> sartorial decisions i am a uh and uh, 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 oh god what's the word I'm looking for you better edit this <laughs> um, misogynist <laughs> I was going to say I'm an equal opportunities judgmental bastard where it doesn't matter what gender you are that I will deconstruct your wardrobe from my uh, ivory tower where you cannot see my own wardrobe but she was uh, she looked like a bad balloon animal oh, no. and she wore weird dated smocks had big curly hair and elongated fluorescent fingernails that being the sort of larger woman I was like that's a risk because you might pop if you scratch your chin (laughs) 
And she was a classic computer says no, dead-eyed, heartless, uber boss. They're the people, and you look at them and you're like, you're just filler, aren't you? You're Mm. just like the NPCs of the world. Yeah, absolutely. I am very fascinated by the idea that for most most people that you encounter will be these they'll be extras in your life and we are extras in other people's lives and mm-hmm. sometimes you know if you're lucky enough to do a job that involves charm and charisma that we do then we get to be like cameo appearances in other people's life like this time there's times when i'm an extra when you know i'm tired in a taxi cab or i'm buying something in a corner shop or you're an electrician come around and read the meter i'm an extra but if you get us on good form we're fucking cameos baby yeah <laughs> in the background yeah Is it, but so, um, that job, uh, was it long-term? Did you do it? I did it for, I think, 12 months. That's a long time. Maybe 18 months. I can't, like, I cannot remember, but I did, I'm, I did it sort of two-ish, maybe two, three nights a week, through most of sixth form. Yeah. Because, you know, I lacked the physical nous to do uh, a job that involved lifting things. Fair enough. And it's a a job that requires some gift of the gab. Like, the hard bit for me was staying on on brand with the script. Mm -hmm. Do you know what? I've never thought about this. Train me up for stand-up comedy, because obviously ringing up doing market research, oh boy, a lot of rejection. Yeah. Um, But most of the time I was like, right, how quickly can I get onto a conversation about something that I'm not allowed to talk to? (laughs) So I had a lovely... And, like, if occasionally my section would be full, so i get put on another section, and occasionally that section wouldn't have a supervisor, so i just bring people up and have a chat about the football, talk about what was in the cinema, and then after five minutes be kind of like, I meant to do this uh, quiz with you, but can you be arsed? No, no, neither can I. Cool. All right, see you later, love. Bye. Bye. Yeah. <laughs> oh, that was cool. Also, the person um, whose job it was to listen in, was that all they did all day? Because that is such a creative need, isn't it? Yeah, pretty much they... I. I can't remember whether they also sort of like did the calls in a sort of squadron leader coming down to muck in with the troops and show them how it's done. But I never, I never remember. I remember, I can't remember her name, but the woman who was in charge of my section was really nice. Um, She, now how can I phrase this nicely? She also looked like an NPC. There was very little individuality in the look that she had created. It was very much kind of like three notches up and down on the spectrum on your computer of trying to create a character. Yeah. Like blonde hair, glasses, polo neck jumper, jeans, done. I've made a woman. Yeah. Um, but that'll she, do. <laughs> she, yeah, that'll do. Bit slapdash. But she was, yeah, she was really nice. It was her boss who would just parade up and down like a... Th- she lived in a clockwork Swiss mechanism, just waiting to come and be a job's worth over you. It was like, do you know what? You know that shit balloon that got made of Trump? <laughs> um, yeah. <laughs> she, was like, she was like a job's worth version of that. Oh, no, that's awful. Yeah. And now, I've got to phrase this delicately so that people who didn't previously think that I'm a bell end really don't know. <laughs> like, I'm... I'm reasonably clever, and as a 16-year-old, I was the same level of reasonably clever, but with no filters and far too much cockiness. Right, as all teenagers. Yeah, but you, I imagine, may also have experienced when you did a shit-kicking job when you were a teenager, working for adults who had all gone wrong for because they were maybe not that bright and were also dickheads. Yeah. And you had to look at them going, my prospects are better than you because I'm like not currently but give it a few years because i'm clever i've got a talent and i'm not a prick and that's a difficult relationship to manage 
Yeah, because that's their forever. Yeah. yeah. Well, it's, I mean, it's a tricky thing because obviously we, you know, being performers and like, because uh, you, you make shit as well. Yeah. Like that's, that's a, to call it a calling is a bit grand, but I think you, it's much easier to see how you get uh, spiritual nourishment from it. Yeah. But not everyone needs spiritual nourishment from their jobs. Some people are bin men, but then at the weekend they go mountain biking or nursing squashed hedgehogs back to health and yeah. good for them. <laughs> but you could see that these people were empty husks. Yeah. Oh, that's tragic, isn't it? It was really tragic. So I remember doing a job and we all went for this promotion and obviously 40 people couldn't get a promotion. There were two, <laughs> two jobs and people got really upset about it. And like some people left, they were really upset. And I was like, why? And then I was like, ah, this is your fulfilment. This isn't just a thing that you do to make money whilst you live your life. Yeah, and I don't like, and it's hard. I don't want to be um, cruel with this because it's what I always think about when I think about AI and how you know artificial intelligence is going to take over so many jobs. And I'm like, what will people do? Because they're not going to live in a beautiful utopia, listening to Chopin and reading Wittgenstein, or or fuck it, don't need to be that grand, listening to like uh, Lizzo, which they should, Mm. um, and reading comic books. Like, people, I was about to say, people need to work, and I was about to go (laughs) down a very Nazi route there. Work makes us free, ladies and gentlemen. (laughs) But, um, yeah, it's... People who... Jobs that ultimately don't really need to be there getting the fulfilment in it. I mean, comedians yeah. don't really need to be there. No. But also, we are, I mean, we're not artists, we're craftsmen. It, it's entertainment. It's entertainment. It? But and you need entertainment, otherwise what's yeah. the point of life? Yeah. It, well, I suppose need. What is what is need? Well, like, like, all right, what then. needs to be done? To Maslow's <laughs> hierarchy of needs. Oh, God. But, no, but there's some tasks that are seen as kind of like low or menial, and you're like, actually, if there weren't cleaners in hospitals or dustbin men or fruit pickers, that's society done. Yeah, it's like desperately needed. Yeah. And very important. It's more like this, this market research job that I did. No one... The notion of market research, I get you know we would like to make a thing we do better let's find how to make it better great but it was so dead-eyed and robotic and soulless and ultimately if you i was doing it for bt do you know what i reckon i could make what bt do better without doing market research yeah and also maybe rather cynically i think over the past few years we've done a lot of public consultations as a country yeah. They haven't revealed that the country really knows what it's talking about very much. No, people on the whole don't, do they? No. And people and I mean, I'm I am increasingly of the opinion that people on mass shouldn't have their opinions validated. No. I think that uh, there are people that have been put into jobs to make decisions because they are well informed upon the topic. Mm-hmm. Uh, and that if people who aren't are asked what they think, that like that's not your job. It's not my job to know whether we're better on, off in the European Union or not, is it? But it's their job, and they've just gone. Oh well, the people said. <laughs> yeah, no, like, like the people say a lot of things. The people yeah. say that Mrs. Brown's boys is funny. The people say that Westlife should be allowed to have as many number ones as possible. 
that people say that Paddy McGuinness is a viable comedian. People <laughs> are painfully dumb. Yeah. And the, the thing that I find really hard to, um, uh, uh, what's the word I'm looking for? Uh, re... God, it's a relief that I don't sort of communicate for a living. Right. The, the thing that I find hard to reconcile is that I do, like, one-to-one, -one, all people are great. If you yeah. unlock the key and then open them up, they can be great. Um, and obviously in a group where it's like one of us and a hundred of them normally laughing at something we say every 10 to 15 seconds, they're great as well. Mm -hmm. But there's a critical mass when people become dumb cattle. Yeah. And I find it really hard to reconcile that thought, which I think I do have, and a lot of people share and go in. But I do still quite like people, and I'll meet people from all sorts of different and diverse backgrounds. And to be fair, as a white British guy, it's not the people from diverse backgrounds that I mostly have the problem with. It is yeah. mostly the monocultural ones. But when we're not talking about how they feel about, you know, foreigners or having tax money spent or you know, all that sort of jazz, I get on quite well with them. Yeah, because people ultimately all want the same thing, which is just to be happy and to have, you know, like their needs, basic needs met. And that's the thing that we can all share. We all love food and shelter. Yeah, but the problem is some people love food too much and want to keep all the shelter for themselves and think yeah. that people who have not been able to provide food or shelter for themselves are inherently flawed yeah. and that they are better than them um, because they have maybe might be a bit more resilient. Um, oh, this is... It has. It's got <laughs> way off topic, hasn't it? It has. Okay. Um, I, I mean, I did turn up intending on being funny, but I've, uh, <laughs> I have uh, been reading too much Twitter. <laughs> I try to curate my Twitter to make it happier, and it's clearly not worked. <laughs> you see, the thing is, this is going to come out on the 1st of March, but now Brexit's happening tomorrow, apparently. So, no, it's going to happen tomorrow, 11pm. Is we're it? We're free. Yeah, we're oh, free. thank God. We're free, mate. I can, I'm can. i so looking forward to having the yoke of the European Union lifted from my shoulders. I am. I just really want to have to buy a visa to go to France. <laughs> oh, boy. Oh, am I looking forward to that? Oh, shit, you just reminded me. I was going to be trying to get German citizenship for my son. Yeah. Uh-oh. <laughs> Quickly, you've got, like, six <laughs> hours. <laughs> go. Yeah, that is, I mean, that's... That's a thriller that you could put on the on film. A man <laughs> tries to fill out German uh, bureaucratic forms in under six hours in triplicate <laughs> to desperately get him away from the creeping fascism of his home country. He's got the Duolingo bird. He could be the sidekick. Yeah. <laughs> oh, God. I tried to learn Japanese on Duolingo, and it is hard. I was just like, right. well, it looks like I'm not learning it. <laughs> well, the only language you can learn on Duolingo is Hebrew, surely. Is it? I've just made a very bad pun. Keep I up. don't know. I can't. <laughs> Duolingo. Oh, got it. Yeah, there we go. <laughs> I thought it. I thought, am I better than saying it? I initially thought yes. And then, uh, see, can't trust people. I've, no. made a, I've made a poor decision there. <laughs> Get out. Yeah. <laughs> No, I'm kidding, of course. So we've got another half hour yet. <laughs> <laughs> so did you ever get to see the fruits of your labour as a market researcher? Did they ever come back to you and they're like, because you've asked these questions, we've made this improvement? Uh, oh, no, no, we never got kind of like the, the BT rep coming by with his shiny shoes and red and white stripy jacket going, <laughs> guys, we've built it. We've built the perfect telecommunication system. It's all thanks to you. And then we all jumped in the air and hung there suspended in midair. 
No, I never, I never had that. Oh. Yeah. Because that would have been a good motivation. I, I guess so. Well, not good. Air motivation. <laughs> <laughs> I, I, I think, I mean, I can't quite remember what being in my 16-year-old head was now, but now if I was doing that, I'd think that what I was doing was absolutely functionally pointless and the only reason I was doing it was because at the time it was an easy way to make a bit of cash so I could go and buy some weed <laughs> um I, like I'm like it's weird like at school I was a very good boy and wouldn't talk back and wouldn't uh show disdain for things I was disinterested in and I think that as soon as I left school I was like right this has been pent up I remember going for an audition my first agent who uh, was an acting agent and uh, did not understand stand-up comedy um and she sent me for a pantomime audition fine nothing wrong with pantomime but it was a local pantomime version of Mother Goose and uh I was auditioning for the part of Silly Billy and they had on the script, you know that bit in the pantomime where it's, uh, the character goes, hey, boys and girls, um, I'm going to come on stage again. When I say, hey, boys and girls, you go, hey, silly Billy, and, and you go, I can't hear you. They gave me an audition script which had that written out verbatim over like three pages. And I admittedly was going to this audition the day after I'd been to tea in the park <laughs> and I was quite hungover and unshaven and sunburned and may not have showered, so I wasn't looking my best. But I was in the audition, I lo- and it was the moment I realised that acting maybe was not for me. <laughs> I looked at 20 other actors in this room who, like, they needed this. And I was like, I don't. <laughs> I don't need it. I'd rather be back doing market research. And I went into the audition, and I read the piece. So we go like, hey, boys and girls, my name's Silly Billy. When I come on stage, you'll say, hey, Silly Billy. And I'll go, hey, boys and girls. But you've got to do it louder. Okay, I'm going to go off stage now, and you try it again. Shall we go? Like, can I interrupt you, Ben? You're not really, you're not really committing to the role. It's like, well, I don't really get what his motivation is. Uh, to be honest, like, is he? Why does he need the validation of a room full of children? This guy is like, he needs to be his own man. They even told me off in the audition, yeah. but yeah, but it was just like because the thing I ha- like, I hate. I've always hated this, like with either kids' theatre or just talking to kids. Hate people talking down to kids. Yeah. Fucking hate it. And you can be silly and daft with kids, but it was so patronising. Yeah. Like, even my, my kid is 18 months old, and he can tell when you're talking down to him because yeah. he is a genius. Yeah. <laughs> um, but no, but no, he really, like, he, gen- he genuinely can. He knows when you when someone's being a dick to him. Yeah. Um, and I, that, that would have been the worst job if I'd have got it, but thankfully, torpedoed. My audition, <laughs> and I bet uh, a desperate actor was very uh, grateful that you yeah. did. Yeah, and they got the part, and that actor went on to become Jack Whitehall. Yeah, <laughs> of good omens. Of good odds. Yeah. Oh, good omens. It's very good. It's it is. I watched today again the cold open of episode three of um, Crowley and Azura Fail's friendship from the Garden of Eden through to World War Two. It's the best bit. Yeah, best bit in the whole series. Yeah, Uh, I didn't, I couldn't afford Amazon Prime, so I'm watching it. I'm taking the slow route with BBC. No, that's Uh, fine. Your your conscience is intact. Yeah, I I bought. It's the last thing I will ever buy on Amazon Prime (laughs) because I didn't know it was going to the BBC, and I was like, I need this one looks good. I need to check. I need to check that they've not fucked this up. 
Yeah. And it's because and the thing is the thing with good omens, uh, let's turn this into a book club for a minute. First Pratchett and Gaiman book I ever read blew my mind as a 14 year old. My wife, who uh, got into them later in life, so she's not read Good Omens, mm. and she read it recently was like, it's not all that. I'm like, well, no, now you've read all their other stuff. But yeah. as like a, a, a as entry-level stuff, it's great. So the TV series, I was like, it's faithful to the book. There's great performances. Let's ignore the rickety plot. Yeah. So I haven't read it. Would you recommend – I've not read much of their work. Would you recommend Good Omens first? Um, well, um, read it. You'll enjoy it. It's got the dark gothicness of Gaiman and the irreverence of Pratchett. But forget, like Gaiman is astonishing. Read the Sandman comics. There are twelve volumes. It'll take you a month plus. But uh, seven hundred pounds. Yeah. <laughs> no, they're about. It'll cost you twelve. It'll cost probably cost you one hundred and twenty, hundred and fifty quid. Oh, okay. So you know, you buy one a month. That's all right. Yeah. <laughs> They're one every yeah. three months. Um, they are astonishing and yeah. so rich. And then his best, my two favourite books of his are American Gods and Anansi Boys. American Gods is breathtaking. It's um, uh, the notion that every immigrant community from the Vikings onwards that went to America brought their gods with them. And these mm-hmm. gods now are becoming extinct at the turn of the century and to the new gods of the god of internet and television and commerce. And it's a battle between these two sets of gods. That sounds great. Yeah. And then Anansi Boys is one of the gods in it. Anansi, who is a West African um, and Caribbean spider trickster god. And it's all about his relationship with his sons. Um, and then Pratchett. I mean, the easy way, start at Colour of Magic, work your way through the Discworld. And the first few, in his own words, were rearranging the furniture in Tolkien's attic. which, uh. <laughs> which And they're great, but they're very pastiche and... Yeah. Uh, especially the first two, there were a couple of... uh, It's interesting. There are a couple of female characters that are definitely a pastiche of the sort of warrior princess character. But if you didn't really realise it, you go, this is a bit unreconstructed. Yeah. Um, And he has, uh, you know, Pratchett was writing mostly in the 80s, 90s, noughties, more men than women characters in it. But he's so progressive before his time. So one of his characters is, um, there's a bunch of witches... Uh, and he's for a, for a man who wrote it in his forties. He's really good at getting in the head of a belligerent eighty-year-old woman. Oh, okay. But then he has my favourite set of books are all set in the city watch, the police force, where um, over time the the main city in the disc worlds, the, the London of it, becomes the magical world's version of diverse, where there's not just humans, there are dwarfs and werewolves and vampires and trolls, and they all become part of the police force. And this diverse police force really fucks off the aristocrats of the city and my one of my favorite characters in the police force there's um so dwarfs in the world um very hard to tell who is a male dwarf and who's a female dwarf because all dwarfs have beards and armor and dwarf sex is basically mostly the dwarfs trying to find out whether they are both the opposite sex <laughs> and then trying to get armor off and there's a dwarf who's called cheery little bottom and it's revealed that cheery is a woman and Cheery starts wearing lipstick and eyeshadow, but still with a beard yeah. and armour, and starts wearing little heels on uh, her boots and uh, having like a little chainmail skirt. And it's a, it's essentially talking about trans rights Yeah, 20 years before it was a thing and coming down on the right side of history. Yeah. And it's, Aww. yeah, it's lovely. He's a, that's the thing, what I love about Pratchett, he's an amazing storyteller. He's a hive of invention and he is 
He's he's cynical about the things you should be cynical about and extraordinarily wise and warm on the things you should be wise and warm about. You have sold me. I will <laughs> Mate, search for these books now. I will give you a reading list yeah. at the end of this. <laughs> Good. <laughs> so. So, Jobs, stop being distracted. Jobs, that's right. What was the, because you said that that was the mundane one. What was the awful one? So, I can't remember. It was when I was still living in Newcastle. I can't quite remember when I did it chronologically but it was um i think i saw the advert for this in like the back of a paper or back of a magazine and it was a proper do you want to earn pounds 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 <laughs> I earn pounds, pounds 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 yeah, yeah yeah of course you do <laughs> um and it was door-to-door sales but i i i think it might have been door-to-door sales of charity stuff now i when I moved to London after I graduated from drama school and as I was at Open Spot, I was a, a, a charity, was a charity mugger. Yeah. Uh, I was a street charity fundraiser. <laughs> but that was for, um, that was for a well-regulated company that definitely made, it was anywhere between two and a half to five times the investment from the charity. And the good people who work for it were some of the best people I've ever met in my life. Um, yeah. yeah, I know. You, I totally understand that chuggers can be fucking irritating and guilt tripping and wankers on the high street and all yeah. of those can get to fuck. But the ones who could make eye contact with you, say, hello, you look friendly, come and talk to me and give you a bit of inspiration about Amnesty International and make you sign up. That's the stuff I did with them. And it was great. And I met yeah. some brilliant people doing it. Not this company. Oh, no. There was a guy so that I got taken under the wing of this guy on my training day in a car. He said, basically, we drive to an estate, we go around, knock on the doors. Most people slam the door in your face, tell you the fuck off. Um, and, um, oh, I remember before I got in the car with him, I went to I went to an interview. And I'm, again, I must have been 16. And he I sat down for the interview and he said, so, um, first of all, I'm impressed. I'll tell you why. You're wearing a suit. Oh. And I was like, <laughs> Because I, you know, I was, I think it was in sixth form. My sixth form, we wore suits. And I think my mum was like, You go to an interview, you wear a suit. I was yeah. Like, all right. But, I'm not, but I was there with all these other little fucking jewelry toe rags who were looking <laughs> to rip off grandmas for four quid a month so they could get their commission. Um, so I went out with this guy, and he was like a mixture of a, a, a malevolent Dell boy, Alan Partridge, and Bricktop from Snatch. Oh, no. <laughs> just. Um, like all he cared about was just gonna, like you just got you just gonna go in there and the best one of the granny because they'll invite you in you'll have a chat for like an hour because they're really lonely and they'll make you food and then you just got to guilt trip them and he was he was the most cynical person I'd ever met yeah and I I think I quit at lunchtime wow. I was just like like this is awful you're a dick I did not say to him because people when when I when I was doing street fundraising which i did for three years some people would quit at lunchtime because they'd be like i can't do it it's not for me because yeah. standing on a high street being ignored being told to fuck off yeah is hard right. and admittedly you have to learn it but if you're a fundraiser and you're consistently to being told to fuck off maybe change how you're approaching people yes that is true like i was told to fuck off like 10 times in three years yeah and at least half those times i maybe deserved it like it, it taught me how to compare yeah because I think that there are times when those people do need to be told to fuck off. Oh, yes. That's when they're following you down the street and you're like, this is Bre- harassment now. Bre- breaking the code, not allowed. Oh, isn't it? Yeah, yeah, yeah. You're only allowed to walk three steps. 
okay. That's why I love Flyering in Edinburgh, because it's the same sort of thing, but there is no code. Oh, yes. So if I, I, I like, I, at the Ember Fringe, if people don't take a flyer from me in week two or three, I lose my rag with them. Yeah. No, sorry, not if they don't take a flyer, if they fail to acknowledge me as a human being. Yes. Because as a, as a charity fundraiser, if someone ignores you, just got to take it. Yeah. It's their world, it's their life. You've asked them for a chat. If they don't want to, absolutely fine. But in Edinburgh, where people know what's going on, they're definitely tourists. And it's if I, if I make eye contact and go, you look fun, come see my show, and they blank me out, I mean, you're either getting some passive aggression from me or I will lose my fucking rag. Yeah, because you can just say, no, thank you, or oh, we're going home, or yeah. like, there are so many things that you... Or just smile. <laughs> yeah, yeah, that's all I want, just a smile. Yeah. But I've had people, like, ignore me, or even take the flyer, immediately throw it in the ground or in the bin. Because then you have to go and pick them up, because it's your face on them. That's being stomped on by uh, all of the people off to the tattoo. We once flyered someone, and then... Uh, I found the flyer covered in piss on a toilet floor, and you're like, oh, that cost money. Yeah. <laughs> you could have just not taken it. <laughs> but, it but it's hard because so much of that sort of stuff is, like, the stopping people is very much uh, getting into people's instincts before they know what they're doing. It's a little yes. bit Darren Brownie. Like, because I, like, I, like, eye contact's important, like it is from, from improv. If you want to get good at improv, one of the skills to maintain eye contact with the scene partner. But you make eye contact, you smile, you go, you look friendly, shake their hand, and you sort of move around to stop them before they know what you're doing. You're going, right, you look fun. Oh, cool, nice skirt. You just bought it. Where's it from? Or, oh, your accent. It's from Yorkshire, right? Or Lancashire. And yeah. you're in. And you're and, and some of you might be listening to this going, you cynical pickup artist bastard. <laughs> but it was fascinating. I met loads of cool people doing it. But um, and it's I use exactly the same tricks and I'm flyering. Yeah. The hard bit is then getting people to sign up to a charity, and you, uh, you can do it cynically, but those people are not going to give for very long. That's yeah. the one where you have to be genuine. Yeah. Um, unless it's Great Ormond Street Hospital, in which case no one ever turns that down. <laughs> no, you can't. Really. I've got. Um, I used to love when I was fundraising in London. Um, bumping into comedians and I'd be like, and they'd be like, oh shit, hey Ben. I'd be like, <laughs> yeah, you're not leaving this conversation until you're giving this charity two quid a month. Uh-huh. And my mate Paul is just like, I still give Great Ormond Street a tenner a month, <laughs> even when I can't afford to, because you persuaded me and it's sick kids, Ben. <laughs> it is. Like, it's children dying of cancer. I can't not give them my money. <laughs> yeah, it's, uh, it's hard, isn't it? And there are so many. There's so, many. <laughs> so so many kids. So many kids. Just get better kids. Have a better yeah. diet. God. But the but the but the chugging I did later, you were you were on a flat wage. Yeah. Which but which would fuck some people off and be like, well, you're doing this for money. I'm like, do you think your doctor cures you for free, numb nuts? Yeah. They don't do it because they like you. They do it because they well they might do. They do it because they like medicine, getting getting paid. Mm. But some of those companies were quite uh, immoral. And you would be on uh, commission, which would lead to desperation, which would lead to following and guilt tripping and all that. We did it a way better way of um, wage and bonuses, and it and yeah. it worked. The original one I did when I was sixteen, it was I could you might have even been on pure commission, but it was like the worst kind of snake oil salesman bullshit, and just the demeanour of the people was horrible. Yeah. It's all like comedians because, like comedians, you are essentially manipulating a room full of people. Yeah. And some of us might do it via original writing and charm, and some of us might do it by pulling the levers. And we've all met, and it's 
these comedians can be very hacky and very successful. But when we see them, we're like, well, you're doing the job. Yeah, I can see exactly where all yeah. of this is going. <laughs> yeah, it's like Jose Mourinho managing a football club. We're like, yeah, you're winning 1-0, but it's ugly as sin. <laughs> yeah, football. Nah. <laughs> so, I don't know. I'm sure you're capable <laughs> of understanding the analogy. I get it, I do. I, get, I, I think... know who Mourinho is. Is he the... No, I don't know. I've got a picture in my head. He's the grumpy Portuguese one who appears in a lot of aftershave adverts who used to be uh, charming and messianic and now is a grisly, cynical prick. I've said the word cynical a lot on this podcast. <laughs> yeah, well, I mean, it brings it out, doesn't it? So what's the, what's the best job you've ever done? None. <laughs> no, well, no. I mean, it's. I mean, the 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 cliche thing is the one I currently do. Like yeah. being be a stand up comedian when it's going well. It, yeah, I get the incredible hit of two, three, four hundred people laughing at things I'm saying, and it. And when and when it's going well, when you're in the moment where you're like nothing, I anything I say in this moment will get a laugh because we're so tuned in, and when they are being. When I have an audience, audience who are incredibly playful and let me riff with them and fuck around with them, it's amazing. There's loads of admin. It can get you down. It's really hard to do it every single time. Sometimes you have to do the shittiest gigs in the shittiest places in the shittiest way. But still, it's amazing. To to and what I love about comedy is how d- democratic it still is. Like you can be a, a an open spot, be new at it. And you can be gigging with people off the telly. I think of very few jobs where someone brand new can be working with, like, when you first start working in, like, a Mackie D's, you're never going to accidentally come across Heston Blumenthal. Yeah. But when you are uh, an open spot, you could gig with Dara O'Brien. You could gig with Russell Howard and they're trying out new stuff. Or with, you know, the, I don't know, like Jeff Innocent or Ninia Benjamin or, you know, people at the top of the circuit. Yeah. It's great. So... Yeah, stand up. The other thing I love to do, my, my first ever um, acting job was wicked. Um, I worked uh, for West Yorkshire Playhouse in their um, uh, theatre and education department. And sometimes theatre and education is a bit shit yeah. and a bit wanky and a bit like legs akimbo from League of Gentlemen. <laughs> but they pumped loads of money into it. And it was me. It's the maddest thing because when you're acting at drama school, Everyone is the same sort of age. And yeah. so you've got 25-year-olds playing 18-year-olds and playing 80-year-olds. And this one, it was a it was a two-hander. It was me and this guy in his 40s. Um, and it was the two it was the two clowns from The Tempest, Trinculo, the jester, who was me, and Stefano, the drunken butler, who was him, doing a theatre and education version of The Tempest. We did it in the round, semi-improvised, incredible set where we had like this treasure chest that opened up in the Prospero spell book. Yeah. And it was, and we'd go around to, uh, play to classes of, I don't know, 11 to 16 year olds. And imagine it was like playing to some, a variety of Yorkshire <laughs> secondary schools. And you can, you can imagine the crossed arms coming from the, the kids. Yeah. But we had great fun. Like yeah. just, yeah, there was there's something about going into a regimented environment like a school and being like, We're the we're the jesters, let's fuck about. Yeah. And it was lovely. We were in, we'd like go in a van and go up uphill and down dale and all this Wallace and Gromit looking country and we'd do one or two shows a day. And I'd be done by half three. And it's first time I think the only time I ever stayed in digs 
and I was staying with this the the most the most Yorkshire looking woman I think I've ever <laughs> met. She was it's some she was someone who was like an absolute stunner in the seventies and in a very seventies way. She was like five ten, tan, big permy hair, big toothy grin, and was just lovely. Yeah. But like I but I imagine if I'd met her in the seventies, I was like, I can't talk to you. You're too hot. Yeah. Um. <laughs> And um, I came home once. God, what was her name? I can't remember her name. But I came home once from the gig and was like, let's call her Steph. I'm like, Steph, what's that? What's that smell? Came to the living room. There was her and her mate. And they were like, oh, we're just doing yoga practice. And they were there just sharing a spliff and getting high together. <laughs> and I was like, oh, well, I'd been sort of wandering off around the estate to have a joint. But it turns out we can all get high together. <laughs> so I spent eight weeks getting high with this uh, Yorkshire lass in her 50s. Nice. <laughs> who was, oh, oh, she was so sweet. And um, and we went to all sorts of schools. We went to a Young Offenders Institute. That was mad. Yeah. Yeah, they sprung that on us one day. And I thought it was going to be kids who were just in for, you know, robbery, maybe a bit of assault. No, no. These were kids who were in for murder. The big dogs. Big, the big dogs. Oh, God. Yeah. <laughs> Not those guys. Yeah, I know, I know. And, you know, I thought, right, right, I've got to go into the room. I've got to find the alpha kid, yeah. this little three foot four, 14 year old, slap him across the jaw. <laughs> but the maddest thing they caught, like, the oldest kid would have been 12. And none of them, because you know, sometimes you get 12 year olds, you've got like a mustache and five o'clock shadow. They weren't, they were children. Yeah. And you, you would not know that they had done these crimes. You absolutely wouldn't. They didn't look like Chucky, they yeah. were kids. But the thing is, in every other classroom, I'd fuck about with the teacher. Uh, I'd mess about with them. And I did it with them, but it was because the guy who ran this Young Offenders Institute was, you know, he looked like a, he he looked like the principal from Back to the Future. Yeah. <laughs> and so when I, oh, I think I put the wizard's hat on his head or I, or I sort of like took the piss out of a couple of little things and... He gave me a look of, this is not a good idea. <laughs> yes. And the kids were like, you're allowed to do this? You can undermine his authority. God, and I was like going, I was freaking out in the van on the way home. I was just like, have I just ruined these children's like rehabilitation? Is there going to be a riot at this child <laughs> prison because of me? <laughs> Um, was it? Tell me there was a, a riot. I'm really sad. There's not. Yeah, oh. there was, yeah. There was a riot, and they dubbed verses of Shakespeare on the walls in their own shit. <laughs> if it wouldn't have been that for fucking Jeff. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> but, Fine. But that was. Like, so I did that on the day, and then I went out and started doing open spots in the evening, and that was when I first started taking stand up seriously. Going, I would I would go around, and it was lovely as well because I couldn't drive, so I'd go on like these little, um, you know, the little sort of. Um, uh, I think they're called the Pathfinder trains, the little chugger chugger trains yeah. that go all around the wee little hills and valleys of Yorkshire and Lancashire. And to be getting those, listening to a bit of Rich, Richard Hawley on my headphones, getting between them. And at every gig, because it was what was it, about 11 years ago, there would be me, Chris Stokes, Sam Gore, and Chris Ramsey. Yeah. And Ramsey would be there doing his hair. Yeah. <laughs> and they're normally. I think it would like like there'd be quite a few competitions that it'd be me, Chris Stokes, and Sam Gore. Chris is now a very successful comedian supporting Milton Jones. Sam is a brilliant writer for Mock the Week, and he also does uh, stuff on Facebook called um, "I See You," which yeah. people have probably seen shared a lot. But um, every week, either Chris would win the competition, Sam would win the competition, and I'd do all right. 
But uh, the big competitions, Chris regularly won, and Sam would get so fucked off. It was <laughs> so, so funny watching him try and fail to be magnanimous. <laughs> it's weird, isn't it, the competitions? Because you're like, I just want, I like everyone, and I want everyone to do well. But there's, you're all narcissists, so you wouldn't be there. <laughs> mm, yeah, it's true. It's. It's like, generally speaking, I think competition, comedy competitions do almost always come up with the right results. Or at the very least, most of the time, most of the people who are in the final should be in the final. And the winners are the sorts of people who should win. But it's not conducive to making good art. No, because it's so subjective. How could you put a musical comedian against a character comedian, against a one-liner, against a straight stand-up? They're all so different. But it also teaches you, for when you want to bill at the weekend, what I love about comedy is we're um, we're lone wolves, but we work together. Like, yeah. obviously, we all want to do the best because we want to be the best at our jobs. And the opener, the middle act wants to be good enough to be the opener, the opener wants to be good enough to be the headliner, and the headliner probably feels the responsibility mm. more than anything else to rip the gig, and because it's fun and, and all that. But also, on a good bill, and this happens most of the time, we're working as a team. Yeah. If I'm hosting, then I'm setting it up for you. If you're the opening act, you're taking the shine off the ball. Cricket analogy. No, no. Um, <laughs> I mean, the middle act, you're probably newer, but you're in the sweet spot, so have fun. And if you're the headline act, that's the big responsibility of taking the taking the party home. So you you don't have shared responsibilities in competitions, but that idea of we're in this together, but we're also competing does exist still. Yeah. It's. Uh, I. I don't think that they should exist, really. But there we go. Can we do? I just think that they're awful environments. But mm. also, you need something to sort of put on your poster. Yeah. You? And, well, you, well, you do and you don't. I remember the first time I met someone, uh, Will Mars. He's a great comic. Who I remember meeting him. We were doing a gig, and he was. Um. I don't know, he's probably, I was probably a little bit newer than him, but I asked him about competitions. He was like, oh, don't do them. And I was like, but how do you get on in your career? He was just like, oh, well, I just know I'd sort of got a 10 and then went and did a 10 for jonglers. They went, yeah, all right, gave me a 20. I did a 20 there. And then I just, you know, I took an hour to the fringe. I was like, but you're, that's against the rules. You're not allowed to do that. You have to go through the competition. It's like, no, you don't. And I was like, oh, oh, you just do things as you want. And it's almost like the best. Like, it's maybe think the best job is the best job is being self-employed. Yeah, that's true. You know, because well, oh god, well we're here. <laughs> like the other job I had, it wasn't best, but it was fun. I did um, tutoring. Yeah. The GCSE uh, A level students and a few degree students. Um, and it, the interesting side of it is that, um, depressingly, most of the time the students were from quite well-off families or very well-off families and again most of the kids and parents were good and they were realistic and i they were either bringing me in because they just wanted to make doubly sure that sebastian was going to get his a star yeah and that was fine because i'd be like i'm going to teach you this but you're really smart so i'll have a good crack about history and i'll try to make you a slightly better human being and just just slip a bit of socialism in there yeah or they'd be an appalling human being and a fucking dunderhead, and the kid would be like, and the dad would be like, "This kid's going to get into Yale," and I'd be like, "You can't even get in a Yale lock, mate." <laughs> he is a D grade student, no matter what I do. Um, and and sometimes I would help students from more humble backgrounds. I'd be like, "Right, you're getting both barrels as best as I can because yeah. I I know that this is too expensive." And I yeah. I, I felt 
like a bit of me felt bad because I was like, I'm reinforcing inequality, but also I need to eat. Yeah, it's a job, isn't yeah. it? Yeah, but so. the, the interesting ones were I would sometimes, on two or three occasions, I taught the children of oligarchs. Wow. Like insanely rich people. And I will say, the two oligarchs thinking of, uh, or the two kids, lovely. Yeah. One of them lived on the street parallel with Bishop's Avenue, which if you don't know it, in, in London, there's in Highgate, Bishop's Avenue, it is the billionaires road there's these vast ugly fresh prince of bel-air style houses that cost 20 30 40 50 million and are are often empty because they're there as just assets for rich oligarchs to have but i taught this one kid and this you know you go in there and there was there was always i saw him his mum, i saw his dad once who was a gentleman with bald head horn rim spectacles black polo neck definitely in arms dealing yeah and then there would be like I don't know, twelve different Belarusian nannies just hanging around the house, and then you go in, and then there'd be a spiral staircase with a chandelier three times longer than me hanging down from it. We look over the palatial gardens, and oh God. yeah, um, and he was a nice one. Oh God, the first time I ever did it was in um, uh, Kensington, and I had to buzz on the door. The door opened inwards, and there was a reception desk, and I saw 16 cameras, and 15 of them had the back of my head on. Oh, my God. I was like, I'm here to teach. And uh, yeah. the uh, the person reception said, okay, Sergei, we'll see you in. Yeah. And Sergei was his fucking minder. Oh, my God. But, yeah. So you managed to get through the reception at my house real easy. <laughs> uh, just for the record, listeners, uh, Catherine does have a, a minder in the corner. Yeah. Um, yeah. Sergey. Just, Sergey. Sergey's there. Yeah. Um, That's mad. What child needs... Oh, well, I was going to say what child needs a minder. It's because of what the parents are doing, not because of what the child's doing, isn't it? Yeah. Well, I... I it's, it, it was mad. I mean... If you're worth a couple of hundred million, why not kidnap a child? Yeah. But um, but yeah, but these this the, the second the, he the, they he was very standoffish. I didn't like him very much. But the second kid was just lovely, and I had to teach him. You know what's commonly on the GCSE syllabus is the Cold War, yeah. and this is the first time <laughs> I had to teach it from the other side. <laughs> like, luckily, you know, son of an oligarch, not a fan of communism, but yeah. teaching him about Stalin and having to go you. You do know Stalin was a bad guy? Good. Yeah. Okay. Yeah, because he's seen as like a bit of a hero, isn't he? Still. Yeah. Killed millions, still seen as a hero. They've not... Yeah. It's utterly bizarre. Yeah. And, um, but no, this kid was... um, He was lovely. And uh, so I taught him over one Christmas holiday, one Easter holiday. But the Christmas holiday, the first... I think I had four or five lessons. That was all. And after five lessons, his mum was like, oh, you're going away for Christmas. Yeah. Okay. Happy Christmas. An enormous hamper full of chocolates and fruit, and this Siberian vodka in a bottle the shape of a tusk wow. that is to this day the best vodka I've ever had. Yeah, like amazing. Yeah, because and like one, like one of my mates who was he was teaching a kid of like a Kazakh overlord, and often you do it through an agency. And he said one time the dad was like, "Now listen, I know that you know the way it works is uh, uh, I pay the company, the company take half, you take half." I want my son to get the best grade. So let's say we cut out the middleman. What will it take for, for per hour for you to make sure my son gets an A? Well, I, I, I couldn't possibly. It's against the £100 an hour. Well, I would 150 an hour. 200 an hour. <laughs> okay, we'll get your son an A, I guess. <laughs> I suppose. Yes. Did he get an A? Yeah, he did. <laughs> <laughs> Did he have to go in and like dress up as a schoolboy? <laughs> <laughs> I 
and like do the test for him. <laughs> I, I imagine so. Yeah, just like trying to fit into the desk with his legs <laughs> up to his ears. Because I would do that for two hundred pounds an hour. Right? Yeah. Yeah, I'd risk identity fraud. Yeah, yeah sure. What else? <laughs> my other my other favourite thing when it was um I did almost all the kids I taught were in uh London. And but one of them was out in Oxfordshire. I was like, all right, and it was it was stunning house in the middle of nowhere, down a couple of proper sort of back alley B roads, and got there. And the mum was like, "Hello, um, you're teaching my twins, son and a daughter. Go teach them for a couple of hours. Come back and have lunch with us. My husband Jeremy will be through in a bit." And I was like, "Cool, great, do that. Taught them, absolute pleasure. Come through for for lunch. It's all laid out. It's lovely. Uh, um, sit down with the twins and the mother, and then the husband comes in and goes, "Hello, I'm Jeremy. Nice to meet you." And I go, "Yes, you are. You're Jeremy Paxman." Oh. <laughs> and I taught Jeremy Paxman's kids, who were lush. Yeah. Um, but genuinely, on the first day, uh, we were sat around chatting, uh, and I said to two of and so, Jack, what have you been learning today? And Jack went, well, uh, I and Paxman genuinely went, come on, come on, answer the question. <laughs> like, you did the thing! You did the thing to your kids! <laughs> Start bringing work home! Yeah! <laughs> <laughs> Just take a day off, Jezza. <laughs> he was, yeah. Oh. It was when he found out I was doing it to like sustain my stand-up comedy career. I got like the uh, uh, the <laughs> eyes of Sauron on me yeah. for that. Oh no. Yeah. <laughs> I don't. Know, I'm trying to think. I wonder. I think one of the kids might have come to watch me. Oh right. <laughs> but they never did, thankfully. Yeah. But he. Um, that was that was funny. His like his daughter was scared of me, which I never realised. Oh. And no, in a lovely, in a kind of like she was. I was good at doing the. I'm disappointed that you have not got this answer correct. Yeah. But her mum was like, you know, she's scared of you, and I was like, really? <laughs> well, that's a nice weapon to have in my armory. <laughs> so sometimes, you know, I'll ask her a question and be like, oh, I don't know, and be like, all right then. <laughs> and just give her the stare down Aww. in character. And I was like, in, in my head, I was like, I'm fucking nailing this. <laughs> I am a grown up. Yeah. Yeah. Exactly. Yeah. <laughs> oh. Well, I, I think we're very near the end uh, here. Yeah, for a um, podcast about jobs ending on, I think I'm a grown-up, feels <laughs> like a really yeah. good... <laughs> uh, so, I mean, is there anything that you would like to plug? This will be March, I think, this one. Oh, March. man, because I've got my... Uh, I'm doing the Vault Festival before oh, then. Yeah. But Tell it's them fun. what they missed. Well, no, well, what I'll do is, I'm guessing you're going to edit this shit out, or do you not uh, edit it? Oh, I don't. Uh, partly because it's it's just nice to have a real lovely vibe of <laughs> the conversation. All right, lazy bones. Uh, I don't know how to edit. Um, I, had, I tried editing one once, and it was the messiest, most awful thing that anyone had to listen to. <sighs> Mate, I'll teach you. Um, <laughs> thank you. You're very welcome. Uh, that'll be my new <laughs> zero hours job. Um, so what I would like to tell you about is two things. If you've enjoyed me whittering away on here, uh, I've got a podcast called Worst Foot Forward, where me and my pal Barry, who's a playwright, we interview people about the world's worst something. So today we uh, interviewed an opera singer about the worst opera of all time. And we've done like uh, emperors and pirates and martial arts and all sorts of stuff. Um, and the other thing is uh, I am on tour. I'm doing uh, my solo show called Fable Maker, which is an improvised hour of stand-up storytelling where I make up a different story every show based on who is in the audience. And um, dates you can get from my website, benvandervelde.com slash tour. Coming up this month, I am at Hot Water Comedy in Liverpool on the 12th. I am in 
Oh, fuck. Either Banbury or Bista. I think it's Bista at uh, Rock the Attic on the 26th. Glasgow Comedy Festival on the 29th. And Aberdeen at Breakneck Comedy on the 28th. Um, and then I've got dates in April and May as well. But go to my website or just type in Fablemaker. Come along, bring your mates, and I'll uh, make some shit up about you all. Yeah, that is a mad amount of travelling, aren't it? Yeah. Yeah, <laughs> that's the job, isn't it? Though? It is the job. I am so desperate for validation. Yeah, I'll, I'll go to Aberdeen for it. <laughs> <laughs> that's like the top, and we're at the bottom. It is. It is. I've 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 gone out on a limb on that one. Yeah. I've got like literally. If, literally, <laughs> if you have, if you are within sixty miles of Aberdeen and have tolerated what i've talked about for the past hour <laughs> for the love of fuck come and endorse my terrible financial decision making because <laughs> you have no excuse <laughs> none none whatsoever oh and that what's the what's the furthest that you've ever traveled for a gig like the longest single journey because we did from london in a car to ulverston uh, and back which took 18 hours and i was genuinely hallucinating oh god uh, was that the laurel and hardy museum yeah and it's wonderful planet Murph. oh it was well good but also, I was hallucinating. <laughs> I did uh, to no, it was in Cornwall, and I can't remember where it was. But um, it's you know, I'm the mad thing going to Cornwall. You get to like Plymouth and be like, not far now, Gromit, and it's two and a half hours on rickety roads. Yeah. And the guy who was driving there with who was a world class terrible comic. Oh no. Just uh, like I mean, he, he'll he'll be dead now um <laughs> but he just just stole people's material and when it didn't go well be like oh, it doesn't matter i'm playing the store tomorrow night he would say to the audience and he was not playing the comedy store no. my least favorite thing about him was that he chain smoked spliffs all the way to the gig as he drove us there oh didn't share any what a bastard what a bastard uh, and i time... oh, sorry, no, i was just gonna say he drove us there it took six and a half seven hours and I had to make up a reason why I was travelling back with the other act because the real reason was like, you're awful in every way. Yeah. And I was like, oh, I think it's only fair since so far that I split the cash with the other acts with the petrol and I never want to see you again. Yeah. Oh, shit. And as well, there's so many terrible acts that get gigs because they can drive good acts there, aren't they? Yeah. <laughs> Which is like, you know, if you're ever at a comedy night and you're like, why are they here? Because they've got a car. Yeah. Oh, it's amazing how much funnier I became as soon as I got my driving licence. It just <laughs> clicks in. I don't know about you, but it was, it was part of my uh, practical test that I've got to, you know, yeah. just like, right, very good. Can you uh, do an emergency stop whilst bitching about the per- people who have got further than you on the circuit? <laughs> oh, that when you get in the car and there's people and they like live in your dream. And they're like, it's fucking awful, this industry. And you're like, oh, <laughs> oh, but I've worked so hard. And I'm like a quarter of the way to your success. <laughs> <laughs> Don't say that. I'm so tired. <laughs> uh, the, I did. I got in a car show once to a gig uh, and we got to the got to the gig and a guy uh, went on stage and he started, the driver went on and he started doing his material about how he was half blind. And I was like, why, the f- why didn't you mention that? <laughs> Uh, but he's a nice guy. Good. Uh, and a, an able driver. There was a car accident, <laughs> but it wasn't our car. It was somebody else's car. Um, and, you know, good on him. <laughs> That's an incredible level of jeopardy. <laughs> it is. Uh, it was a it was a tense journey back. I can imagine. Uh, yeah. <laughs> anyway, uh, thank you for coming on. You're very welcome. Uh, and 
Au revoir. 